0: Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast on iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Sam Quarter.
1: I'm Alex Argo.
0: And I'm Alex Robinson. And this is episode 96. Hey guys, how's it going?
1: Good. It's going good.
0: I feel a little bit tired from the weekend, but
1: it'll,
0: it'll uh, pass. It's a, kind of a short show this week. Um, I did see an article on TechCrunch, and I don't think this really made the the iOS blog blogosphere. But there was a.
1: No, I saw it. it was, there was there's a bunch of similar articles um so so basically, in back in january i guess this didn't make as much of the rounds um but uh capelli the guy who does dash kind of posted an article about uh being out of the app store for 100 days kind of just showed his one of those charts without the the y-axis uh with the revenue uh for app store and non app store direct sales uh and, and basically what he showed is that after being out of the app store he his sales went up and he got a bigger cut of the sales uh cuz they were direct now for for his for him specifically uh i think a big part of that was because of the press that happened around him getting kicked out of the app store um
0: it's really good publicity right yeah
1: yeah apparently <laughs> It's a one-time thing, though.
0: <laughs> yeah, you can't really do it that often.
1: And it's not like one of those free sales where you set your app to free and then you jack the price back up after you're high in the charts that people used to do. Um,
0: yeah, there were some other examples too. Like, oh the, yeah, so the Rogue so Amoeba this guys. week,
1: so this week the Rogue Amoeba guys did a similar post where I think it was just by coincidence, they had uh, had to take one of their apps out of the app store due to sandboxing restrictions a year ago. Uh, and they actually had full year over year data, which and they did not have this giant uh, event when they went out of the app store that, you know, would have changed how things go. And I mean, they basically said something sh- similar. After they were out of the app store, the units stayed about the same, but they were all obviously direct sales, so the revenue actually went up a little bit. And so I guess the conclusion a lot of people are are kind of drawing is that at least on the Mac, the uh, there's not really much benefit to be in the App Store, which was kind of the conventional wisdom for a while, but it seems like we're seeing more numbers to back it up. If people don't typically go to the Mac App Store looking to buy quality apps, it's just kind of a wasteland out there they haven't really done that same uh cleanup or haven't had as an effective cleanup on the mac app store as they have on the ios app store not that there's all the garbage apps are gone from ios app store but it doesn't seem like the mac app store is as much of a vehicle to drive sales uh as as it is on ios
0: i feel like the dash guy and the rogue amoeba guys you know they kind of they got their start on the app store
1: rogue amoeba was not really they, they were around way before the app store
0: well yeah but so they've got name recognition right and the dash guy he didn't really have name recognition prior to being on the app store and he made a quality product that was easy to get to from the app store i feel like
1: keep in mind this is all about mac stuff
0: yeah and I feel like if they didn't have that as a stepping stone, that they maybe would have left the App Store, or never. if they would have never even been on the App Store, maybe they wouldn't have had the same success that they had. It's kind of like they got popular and then they just left.
1: See, th- I don't think that's the case at all for Rogue Amoeba. They started before there was an App Store, and they they were already very popular, and adding their apps to the App Store, I'm guessing, hasn't helped. I mean, we've, we've talked uh, to... We've heard other people with kind of similar stories taking their apps out of the app store and they all seem very happy about it i mean i've never heard a story like oh i took my app out of the mac app store and i'm so disappointed <laughs> uh you yeah. know my sales have dropped off or whatever now we've ma- we've heard stories of yeah my sales have dropped off but they would have dropped off in the mac app store too or i mean i honestly don't think the the mac app store is helping people what what makes you think
0: well it's this it discovery platform to some degree.
1: When I was think, the last time you opened the Mac app store and looked for apps though? Do you do that?
0: Yeah, I do it occasionally.
1: Really? Okay.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm I I do. I maybe I, I should do be as ashamed well. to admit it. But I also use it for updates too, and I'll just look around. I think
2: you know, one of the articles made the argument that the app store is mostly providing benefit as a distribution platform, but not as a marketing platform.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair.
2: And I I think, generally speaking, the app store as a place to find new apps is probably not the destination for the average consumer. I mean, I, I think most of us probably click on the app store and browse mostly when that, uh, little red icon pops up on, on the app store to let us know there's an update.
0: <laughs> You're and assuming people don't ignore
2: that. I I think there's a decent number of people with enough OCD that, you know, having that little badge on there is enough to make you click on it, short of removing it from your dock. Uh, but they're pretty good at giving you a notification as well, especially when there's a macOS update. You know, I, I think this is where, you know, set app is trying to, make a play to provide a curated list of quality apps and, to some degree, be a marketing channel. And, you know, I've been getting periodic emails highlighting a handful of apps every probably once a week. I don't know how effective that app has been. I think Dan Council had an article suggesting that uh, he felt the approach uh, made sense. But I I guess we'll see how it plays out.
1: So, Sam, what did you get out of the kind of the series of articles what was your impression
0: well I, I do think the app store is still a good place to get started but it's something that quickly you can outgrow and it just obviously there's the things that people complain about all the time with like things like lack of upgrade pricing and free trials and everything that you can get off of the app store and then there's sandboxing as well and i think that annoys a lot of people too
1: I think you underestimate the amount of annoyance that sandboxing <laughs> brings, especially if you aren't doing something that fits in kind of Apple's little sandbox of or little I- idea of what makes a good Mac App Store app, like most traditional apps that we see in, you know, most of the good professional Mac apps are are something that you can't make in the Mac Store anymore because of sandboxing. That's why a lot of them have gone away from it.
0: Yeah, agreed. And obviously my lack of experience writing Mac apps makes me horribly unqualified to talk about sandboxing. I'll yeah. I
1: may, that. I may just have that opinion to be fair. Cause one of my business partners, uh, had a Mac app in the Mac app store and it was a pre existing app and it was just so much of a pain that he just shut down his business. <laughs>
0: <laughs> was this the so, HTML editing one?
1: Yeah, it was one of them. Yeah. He had a couple of text editors.
0: Yeah, I, I can't imagine that that would be pleasant on the App Store.
1: But the the core Intuition guys have complained about it, too. I mean, lots of guys have left the Mac App Store. And, yeah, I guess as a marketing channel, I don't tend to get apps from there. I don't know. Maybe it's just me.
0: It would, it would be a good poll. We would have to kind of poll outside of our, our normal contacts, though.
1: So. That would take a lot of effort. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So everybody
0: uh, go ask your friends.
1: Let's that, just that go with what we th- what we think reality is like and go with
0: that. <laughs> <laughs> it works for some people we know or know of. So, Alex, you had a follow-up about the source code generating tool called Sorcery. Have you tried it out yet?
2: I haven't actually got a chance to get my hands on it yet, but uh, you know, it's originally when we first discussed it, I I didn't really see how it would fit into my workflow. I kind of dismissed it as, you know, an interesting idea, but not necessarily something I would adopt. And then, you know, within the last couple of weeks, there's been a few articles uh, from a few different people who have integrated into their workflow and have been using it and getting value out of it. And, you know, I kind of equate with their usage as and, you know, app code or IntelliJ has the code generator. So like generating the equal function or hash code or, um, you know, NS coding, you can use sorcery annotations to annotate your properties and then just have a stencil template that generates the code for you. And you can kind of build that either as a, you know, from the command line or you can have it as part of a build phase to then generate extensions on your classes or structs and provide that functionality so i don't know if this happens to you but you know every, every time you add a property to a class you, you got to think about does this change my equal function or my hash code or um you know if i've got NS coding implemented do am i making sure i'm reading and writing that properly so you know theoretically this will prevent the cases of forgetting to add that new property as as projects evolve. So it's an interesting idea. Um, there's probably more applications than that. Uh, you know, after seeing the articles, it definitely resonates a little better uh, than when I originally looked at it. I don't know. What do you guys think?
0: We need this in a Xcode plugin yesterday.
1: Yeah, it seems really a shame about the the limitations that we have for Xcode plugins. It really it really makes me like wow look at all this cool stuff that we could have let let just let jet brains at it you know let them just I, <laughs> i'm
0: not sure other than say those canned examples i'm not sure off the top of my head how much of it i would need for other things you could do like some dom- crazy domain driven design uis or something with it but nah, i don't think so
2: yeah i was kind of wondering could you do something more involved like uh a- you're kind of a beyond rails generator, You're giving your model generate a view for you. But yeah, I think in practice, a lot of times those generators are a nice starting point, but you must always modify it to a point that looks nothing like what was originally generated for anything really production,
0: and and rightfully so. Just trying to I mean, think if there was any other kind of higher level examples or
2: thinking a little bit about like aspect oriented programming, but you know I don't know. I don't know, please no. yeah some cross uh you know, cr- cross functional needs like uh logging security things like that,
0: yeah, I mean other than say generating code on top of my models, I don't know if I would be able to apply it much el- anywhere else,
2: yeah, you know maybe json parser you know annotate your properties generates your encode decode functions. I don't know, by the time you've done the mapping, it may not have saved you much time,
0: right? And I, I'm kind of trying to think if there was some type of framework where you would need to generate a lot of boilerplate code. You know, it might help there.
2: Yeah, something like Viper. <laughs> you know, there's <laughs> there are code generators for Viper, so you know this might be a different approach. But yeah, but I don't need that. Uh, I don't know if this would actually work in that scenario. You know, you're not just extending. Ex-
0: I was just being a jerk towards Viper.
2: Uh, anyway, uh, if you haven't checked it out, uh, Sorcery, there's several articles uh, we'll link to uh, one of the more recent ones in the show notes and decide for yourself.
0: Yeah. So who who put up this Airbnb Swift 3 migration?
2: It, I added it up there, uh, and that's kind of made the rounds, and you know, where Airbnb's team kind of detailed out their their approach to moving the Swift 3 and um, you know, they give some advice on, on how to go about it and talk about, you know, how much time and resources they devoted to doing the migration. And it was a significant amount of time. I'm sure they have, uh, a fairly complex project that they're migrating to Swift three, but you know, people who haven't started that yet, you know, Xcode, I think eight three is not that far away and not going to support. Swift 2, three anymore, so we're going to be forced on this this path very soon, and it's uh, certainly not something to take on lightly.
0: Looks like at Airbnb they had 36 different Swift modules t- to migrate. I can see that being quite a pain.
2: Yeah, I recently went through a Swift 3 migration on a fairly large project, and it was definitely not a, uh, a quick exercise. It took several days, and honestly the, the biggest pain was The changes to the, how Objective-C code translated into Swift, things that, you know, before might have been forced unwrapped are now optional. And, uh, that article from Airbnb talks a little bit about that and it definitely changed the way, you know, I had to deal with, you know, certain, uh, factory methods and some other things. So it's, it was, um, you know, the migrator gets you so far, but it's just the tip of the iceberg and the rest is by hand.
1: There is a couple of gotchas that I, that kind of surprised me just reading through it. Uh, uh, one of them was kind of performance uh, issues where there were none before. Uh, and I think they may have been able to fix some of those performance issues, just kind of knowing what, what had changed between Swift, the last version, and Swift 3. Um,
0: was that performance in, in their app or in, in compilation times?
1: Both. <laughs> <laughs> they call, they called both of those app oh. differently. Yeah. The debug build time was 4.6% slower, I think they said, uh, after migration, which isn't that big of a deal, but it's going the wrong direction. (laughs) Another thing they mentioned was kind of the release IPA size jumped up 2.2 megabytes just with all the included Swift stuff. And obviously that'll go away once we have a stable uh, Swift ABI, Uh, but that may be a while as we know.
0: Even then you'll still want to distribute to older versions of iOS. Right, so you'll still have to to bundle that runtime in there for quite some time.
1: I could see iOS eleven maybe bundling whatever Swift four, and then by the time we have a stable ABI on Swift five, they'll have a way to patch it in or something. I don't know.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, (laughs) wishful
1: thinking, maybe.
0: Yeah, I guess app thinning would help with that. Yeah, that's a perfect example of where that would help. Where on iOS ten, it would bundle the the Swift standard library.
1: That sounds cool.
0: Yeah. And then in your 11, it would just strip it out. That could be nice. I mean, it's basically what it's there for. Yeah? I'm I'm excited because I should be getting back to some Swift work here pretty soon. And it'll actually be RxSwift, so even better. Then I'll be able to start complaining again about the Swift compiler.
1: At least you won't have the source kit crashes anymore. It'll just be slow or, or whatever the current complaints are, right?
2: Uh they're still there. At least the last time I checked, I think there is uh, optimization in the latest X code to speed up compile times. Uh, at least for generated, the bridging headers or Swift headers. I'm not sure which it is, but you know, rather than recompiling it every time, I think it precompiles.
0: Oh yeah, something about precompiled bridging header that sounds familiar. Oh, but there is a uh, issue that I don't know, you know where this what came up from. But there's a bug in the latest Xcode 8.3 beta where it won't necessarily compile your Swift 3 code that you had before. And that's not a problem with your code. That's actually a problem with Xcode. I'll see if I can dig that link up.
2: So the last thing we wanted to talk about was the idea of building a portfolio online of your work. You know, whether it's experimental projects um you know things you do for fun uh contributing to open source but the idea of having some code out there on github or similar uh, to share with the community Um, you know that's come up a couple times in the last few days and you know i know a few of us kind of contributed to an open source project recently just because it was something we thought was a good idea and you know we wanted to see it get out the door so you know, we found a few issues and uh, did PRs for them and got those merged in and uh, the app shipped last Friday. You know, I don't know yeah. what kind of stuff you guys have out there, but, you no, know, I know I've got a few things, and, and I, I know we've got a shared repo for our Cocoa Heads group where we have code from various presentations that we put out there.
0: Yeah, I recently cleaned up my GitHub a little bit. I had some old repositories that I didn't feel like I wanted them to represent me, either because they were using some weird old technology that I was just experimenting with. or
1: It's deleted. all your JavaScript repositories, isn't it, Sam?
0: Uh, there are a few of them that get <laughs> <that got> deleted. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I did do some maintenance on those things because I didn't want people to judge me by my GitHub like that.
2: Yeah. And I, you know, this came up in a couple of different ways, but the idea is if you're looking for a job, whether you're a consultant applying for a position, uh, with a client or, uh, you're looking for a full-time position, you know, they're going to want to see code talking with a hiring manager for a uh, tech company. And, and he made the comment that he had a candidate that was really strong, but didn't he didn't have anything on GitHub and he thought that was kind of weird for somebody who's you know kind of grew up with GitHub and open source not to have done something.
1: So what is, what do you mean by grew up with GitHub and open source?
2: Well, in terms of uh, open source being so commonplace, you know, I think, you know, most probably fair to say that all the developers we've interacted with use some open source project or another. Uh, So, um, yeah, you know, open source is kind of a commonplace idea and and it's been around for a while. It's just
0: Yeah, GitHub's been around for quite a long time at this point.
2: Yeah. And yeah, not but in
0: years, but
2: Yeah, you know, like old folks like I. Sam and I, you know, <laughs> GitHub wasn't around when we were starting our careers. So we had SourceForge and C V S. Yeah. But,
1: well I remember yeah. that garbage, but <laughs> even
2: even SourceForge, I think I'm trying to think when That was kinda new. That came out.
1: And uh, Google Code has come 90s. and gone since then. There's a lot Thank of stuff goodness. on
2: Google Code. <laughs> Google Code yeah. was horrible.
1: I, <laughs> it wasn't as good as GitHub, but
2: Microsoft had one it's better
1: than SourceForge. <laughs> uh,
2: maybe.
0: I don't know. SourceForge I, was a monster built on PHP. Ugh. Yeah.
1: I, I guess I was just thinking that it really depends on what realm you're working in. I, I think there's a lot of People who work in programming who work on stuff that's necessarily that's not necessarily open source heavy. I mean, if you're in mobile, it seems a lot more likely. Uh, but
2: mobile especially web. if you're doing
1: like enterprise stuff, like a lot of places have policies that you can't do open source, and
2: you know, yeah, there was definitely a long time where I didn't have anything in a public repo. I contributed to a lot of projects in private repos, just not much of anything in in public repos. But more recently, I've tried to take some of my experiments and code from meetups and proof of concepts and put them out there to share.
1: Yeah, I was looking at my GitHub profile and it's not super impressive. There's not like any code that I'm like, yeah, I'm proud of this. Maybe there's a little bit of code out there, but nothing that's like, wow, this is like my baby. This is like my awesome open source project that I wanna share with the world or whatever. It's just kind of like random things like, Oh, I forked this thing and fixed this one bug so I could use it or uh I was doing this dumb little toy project or something, but
0: Yeah, but those demonstrate ability and at least an ability, a affinity to play around and experiment with things.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and I I think most employers or potential clients for consulting they want to see some examples of your work, you know, if the more real the better, but you know, short of that, you're probably going to encounter the programming assignment and you might still get that. Anybody who's looking for work these days probably needs some some example of code that they've worked on that they can share and it doesn't have to be a public repo, it doesn't have to be on GitHub, but uh if it is, even better. You know, that demonstrates that you you know how to use source control, which Definitely not a skill everybody has.
1: <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> Especially
0: coming out of college, it's not necessarily yeah. one of those topics that they are. See, to when teach people,
1: I think that was more true when when we were in college than it is now. I f- I feel like I don't talk to people who are fresh out of college that don't have any source control experience anymore. Are Are you guys still encountering those types of people? Um, it's it's maybe it's just less of a thing than it was before that happened.
2: Yeah, I I think, you know, we generally see college graduates or interns, candidates that have been exposed to something like GitHub, but they've never done anything remotely complex. So it's, you know, everybody's working in master and committing, there's no branching or merging, no PRs. So, you know, they're using version control, but they're using it to the bare minimum capabilities, which is, you know, better than not using that's, it at all. But...
1: Yeah, that's better with people coming in with I did file copy version control.
2: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> oh, no, I, I can beat you all
0: where I saw where they had their source code in version control, but they had a folder in each for dev tests and staging and production in their source control. That's fun. Yeah, That's, that's the worst of both worlds right there.
2: I had a client a long time ago that uh, instead of Source control. They just had folders with dates on it, so every now and then they'd cut a a a, a branch, I suppose, <laughs> a snapshot, and you'd work okay. in the snapshot. And it was uh, an interesting alternative to source control.
0: That's kind of what Git is, anyway, right?
2: To some degree, it's, a it's just a series of diffs. Yeah, you'd have to use like you know a diffing tool, and you have to rely on people knowing which folder to work in. You know, hopefully, you've got like an alias pointing to the most recent the but, head. Yeah. But so, yeah, you
1: guys prefer, you guys prefer to see um, someone with open source or someone who's like shipped an app. If you're looking to hire interviewing someone,
2: I think, you know, I definitely like to see people who have shipped an app because there's that kind of last mile, that last 20% to take a idea and make it shippable is something that I think everybody has to experience to appreciate you know if it's always just a hobby project something that never ships and you aren't really forced to do those kind of production level you know features or or uh you know quality checks that uh you would otherwise so it's shipping is definitely ranks higher than open source you know short of it being like a open source project that has thousands of stars on it
0: yeah i've seen people that can put a good library together, but don't necessarily have the skill set or maturity to make that fit well into an app or translate into how they make an app architecture.
2: And, you know, we have interviewed candidates that had worked on very large apps that, that shipped and was used by lots of people, but they did one screen, one button. They didn't really have to put the entire app together. They just worked on a feature. Uh, So, you know, that didn't necessarily prove that they could ship an app on their own.
0: Yeah. The larger your team, the more specialized you're going to be. And when you're on a small team, you need to be more generalized.
2: So I think the side projects can be very valuable. And, you know, they give you a place to experiment, uh, you know, kind of a sandbox to try out new ideas. But they also kind of let you demonstrate you know, soup to nuts um implementation of, of an app. Uh, even if you don't ship it, it's uh you know, if you're in that environment where you only work on one screen or you know, a very small piece of the bigger application, then you know it can be good to have that side project so you get exposed to more types of problems.
0: It also demonstrates that the person has initiative either way, whether they're creating a library or a full on app.
2: Yeah. And I, I think the people who spend their free time writing code usually suggests that they're, they're, they're motivated and passionate about programming. You know, they're bu-
0: as long as they can keep that, that passion for your work in on the job site and yeah, keep <laughs> their passion for their work
2: at home. Yeah. Which can be hard for some people, but yeah. you know, the pack, pragmatic programmers talks about, you know, building up your knowledge portfolio and you know, working with other languages and other tools and approaches. So, you know, it's it's good to see that in a candidate.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's about all the time we've got for this week. You guys want to tell us where we can find you on the Internet? You can find me at AJ Robinson on Twitter.
1: I'm at Alex Argo. And
0: I'm at Sam Corder. The podcast is at Shared Inst. And if you want to join in on our conversation, you can... Get a invite to our Slack channel at chat.sharedinstance.com. Thanks guys.